Good morning, welcome to Calvary, Cambridge. Um, so today's teaching, as I said before, um, well, how can I put it? Throughout the ages, the churches have got in this tradition of doing a sermon or a sermonette on a Sunday. But traditionally, when the church started in the first century, primarily the teaching was done on the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday, it's not the Sabbath. Okay? So when people came together, they came to break bread, uh, they come to have a meal, and come to get the main teaching of the week. And these days, there's so many books out there, isn't there? And so many things online. But it's something very different about learning together and discerning and dividing the Word of God together collectively. Because when we are gathered together as a body, because we are living stones being built together as a temple to God, the Holy Spirit's here. Amen? Two or three are gathered in my name. Here I am in the midst thereof. And there's angels and everything else gathered. If you believe in the New Testament. If you don't believe in the New Testament, you won't believe what I'm saying. But that's what the New Testament declares. So we are now going to be in Acts chapter 8. Now last week's message was Lessons from History, part 2. And we learned and heard about Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin and giving them a rundown of their history and the people of their history, starting with Abraham and then went on to Moses, and then Joshua, and then David, and then Solomon. And then finishing, Stephen did, with the accusation of the killing of the just one. Who's the just one? It's Jesus. I mean, his sermon started off pretty well, and he kind of got fired up towards the end, finishing with, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And today in the church, so many are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, probably of lack of understanding, or there may be a barrier in our lives. There may be barriers in our lives. And I heard a minister say this week, he said, you're either a channel of the Holy Spirit or you're a barrier. And there's no middle ground. If you're not a channel of the Holy Spirit, you are a barrier to it. Now, Stephen's speech resulted in his stoning. And you remember he had that wonderful vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, receiving him in to heaven, fulfilling his uh, promise that I will receive you unto myself. And there he is, welcoming Stephen into the kingdom. And he had that wonderful vision of the ascended Lord. And his sin... Uh, he said, Lord, do not charge him with this sin. This is his prayer, his dying prayer. Think of this, when people are stoning him. And when he had said this, he really echoes the words of the Lord Jesus. He fell asleep. And I love to read that. See, Christians don't die. Amen? They just fall asleep. And what it should say on every Christian tomb is this. 
temporarily closed, we'll be back real soon. <laughs> Every Christian soon. Temporarily closed, we'll be back real soon. Amen? So today's the beginning, we're going to hear about the persecution of the church. Now, as I said, it's a teaching. It's going to be in three parts, and I will be referring to my notes quite a bit. There's exposition, interpretation, application. I'll be expounding a text, giving a personal interpretation from within the text, and then an application to what we have learned. Now, the teaching today is a very powerful teaching. I know that it is. I've spent a lot of time meditating on it. I have given a teaching very similar to it before. It's taken a lot of study of the word and prayerfully considered. And I'd like you to do the same this morning. Prayerfully consider what I'm teaching. It's going to probably be about an hour, but it will last you months, and it will help not only yourself, but other Christians you come in contact with. Because this is really a releasing teaching. And we're going to do uh, verse 1 to 8 first, which I will give a short commentary. And then 9 to 25 of Acts chapter 8 will be the main teaching. Okay? So we're going to read right now from Acts chapter 8 from 9 verses through verses 25. So would you stand with me this morning? while it is still this morning, aha, for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, from verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, as he had astonished them with sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have no, neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of those things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages 
of the Samaritans. Amen. So Lord, we ask you this morning, Lord, to bless the public reading of your word as you always do. But Lord, give us a stillness in our soul, in our spirit, that we may receive the manna for today, the bread for today. Lord, through your pure word, which is the milk, Lord, deliver, in the name of Jesus, the meat of your word. Lord, we want meat this morning, meat that will last, meat that will change us from the inside out. Lord, and we can only do this and ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Please be seated. So I want to begin, we're just going to do a short commentary from verses 1 to 8 of Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that's Stephen's death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. See, the, opening, uh, the open killing of Stephen gave the green light, the signal, that to persecute the Christians is now okay. Um, it now gives a public declaration that to attack the young church is now acceptable in the sight of those who are still practicing Judaism from the temple. And that's something for us to consider right now straight off the bat here, it only takes one attack on a church for the people of the land to say, now we can, I'm sure you can fill in the blank. And this is what has happened across the nations throughout the world. The beginnings of the persecution of the Christian church, it only takes one church, and then all hell breaks loose. Now, interestingly, that these Christians, these believers in Jesus, fled to the places which Jesus had commissioned them to go. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem and Judea and all to Samaria and to the utmost parts of the world. So all things are working out. Now it was devout men, look, verse 2, who carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. It was normal uh, to bury the body of somebody who was executed but it was forbidden to publicly mourn or lament that person. This is rather dangerous and twofold, because one, you're exposing yourself as a Christian. And it's also was seen as a public protest about what happened to this so-called criminal. So you lamenting and weeping in the street is you saying that the government was wrong, and that would put you in grave danger. And as for Saul, verse 3, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. See, the church had zeal for the Lord, but so did the Apostle Paul. And he really believed, and we will learn more in the weeks to come, he really believed by attacking Christians, he was doing God's will. He really believed it. He was very committed. Basically, you've got to remember that Stephen was accused of blasphemy, not only of Moses, but of God himself. So Stephen is in his right mind and his right understanding. These are heretics. 
They deserve to be killed. The law says to kill them. Now, this would certainly be in, on the minds of the believers of Jesus because he did prophesy and say, a time is coming that they will throw you out of the synagogues. John chapter 16, verse 2. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And I'm sure you can think of that and apply that today. There are people out there who are religious, who would happily kill Christians, thinking that they're doing God's will. But we have been warned. Now, once again, as we heard about the history of Israel, of in the last two weeks, that they were scattered throughout the lands, these believers in Jesus are also being scattered. Look, verse 4 says, Therefore those were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They went everywhere preaching the word. Now when I looked at this yesterday, the words of Joseph came to mind. Write this down, Genesis chapter 15, uh, 50, verse 20. It fits so perfect. It says, you intended to, to harm me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. You see how that works? Brothers and sisters, sometimes persecution has to come in order for God's will to go forth. It's not comfortable, but nobody likes it. We have been warned. And when we're sat on our loins not doing anything, God will bring about circumstances. Or circumstances will come about and God will capitalize on them. You see, even now, a sifting is going on in the church. You know that? People are afraid to go to church. And I'm not just talking about coronavirus. There's various reasons why people are afraid to go to church. And there is a great sifting going on. And there is a great falling away happening throughout the whole world or realm of what I would call Christendom. Churchianity, praise God, is coming to an end. And what will be left is the church. As I said last week, the faithful remnant. And the ice cubes are being removed. The ice cubes are those in the church that call it down. They have to be removed. Because when things start to heat up around the world, the ice cubes won't want to come to a fellowship meal. It would be too risky. The ones which will be left are those who will not bow the knee to the world. That's it. So then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. I love it. Very simple, yeah? Didn't offer them a theological course. He just preached Christ to them and him crucified. Now, this was very brave of Philip because there was an old feud that went on between the Samaritans and the Jews, especially the Jews in Jerusalem because the Samaritans wanted to build a rival temple to the one which was at Jerusalem, because they believed in the Torah as well. And it's actually on Mount Gerizim where I've had the privilege to stand. There isn't a temple there, I can assure you, but there isn't one in Jerusalem either. 
um, where they wanted to build this. Let me just read the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 19. It'll make more sense in light of what I've just said. Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You see that? Because that's what they wanted. They wanted their own temple. But Jesus said that the Father is looking for those who are going to worship him in spirit and in reality. It's another way of translating the Greek word there. Spirit and truth or spirit and reality. But they had both the Samaritans and the Jews a shared hope in the coming one, the just one, in the Messiah. So in a sense, they were against the Jews, but they would happily receive the message especially as it's coming with Philip with power. Now, just read up these last verses. Verse 6. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Amen. And this is where true Christianity goes forth. True Christianity in the power of the Holy Spirit will move and shake things. The churchianity stuff is coming to an end. It's depleting away right now. I'm sure you'd agree with me. It won't last. A lot of the traditional stuff, some of it good, some of it bad, will not stand. Because it wasn't built on the rock. It was built on sand. And it won't last what's happening right now. Throughout the whole world, the traditional churches, many of them are closed right now. And they've kind of given up. In fact, I did hear something recently that the Church of England are actually flogging, selling off loads of their buildings right now as we're all in lockdown. One person said they're selling them off as dead wood. So if anyone wants to donate some money so we can have it, you've got our email address. Amen. So let's begin. That's, that's your starter. Okay, so we're going to begin now from verse 9. Now, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. See, we get an insight here to the people of Samaria. And this is before the arrival of Philip. Now Simon was a practitioner of magic or sorcery or witchcraft, which of course only happens in third world countries and not in western countries because we're much more smarter than that, aren't we? It would only happen somewhere in the outback of Africa, maybe South America, but it wouldn't happen in a place like Cambridge, would it? Where we had the famous occultist, Alistair Crowley. Okay? This is probably the catalyst of where it comes from. And, you, and I know the history of Cambridge very well. There's lots of magic practice, and it happens amongst the intellectuals as well as anybody else. Magic is real, and magic in the Bible is forbidden. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Chapter 18. If you don't believe 
in magic, you don't believe, you're going to have a hard time reading your Bible. Because it's all through the ministry of Jesus. And there isn't one chapter in the book of Acts which isn't touched by something which is supernatural. Uh, Deuteronomy, again, this was a book held dear by those of Samaria. We get God's understanding and God's view on magic. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. I'll be reading from a slightly different translation. The Lord is speaking. When you enter the land the Lord God has given you, be very careful to not imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Now, did the Jews do that? Hmm? Molech. We read last week that they did it. And do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery or interpret omens or engage in witchcraft or cast spells or function as mediums or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. These are massively practiced in the UK. All over the UK. London, it's huge. That's why I call it Babylondon. It's Babylondon. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It's because the other nations have done those detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers. But the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. And we may think, well, that's just all Old Testament. It's not. It's in the same in the book of Revelation, chapter 9, verse 21. And it's talking about a coming and pending judgment. The worship of demons. It's New Testament. Revelation 9.21 says, Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual morality, or their thefts. And the magic arts there is sorcery. The Greek word there is pharmakia, where you get the word pharmacy. Drugs. They will not give up their drugs. And God's going to judge them accordingly. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't weakened in the New Testament. In fact, he's got more fervent. Commit murder in the Old Testament, you had to kill someone. Jesus said, you look at somebody with hatred, you've committed murder in your heart. Which is easier? You want to commit adultery, you have to have sex with somebody. Old Testament, New Testament, you just look at a woman with lust. You committed adultery in your heart. Which one's tougher? God doesn't change, and we can say amen to that, because it means he won't break his covenant, and he will keep his covenant. Because if he keeps changing his mind, we've got nothing to stand on. Amen? Now, Simon astonished the people. He said it bewitched them, which is to simply throw somebody out of a position which they once held. 
See, Paul uses very similar words in Galatians chapter 3. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They've taken the mind of the crucified Christ on to other things, i.e. the law. Now, Simon was claiming that he was something great, and the people of Samaria agreed with him that he was something great. Now, let's have a look. How did the people of Samaria respond? Verse 10. Said so they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Simon had everyone's undivided attention, his every word. Now, how is this possible? The simple answer is he got results. The things that he prophesied, that the magic that he practiced never got results, nobody would go back again. You go to a fortune teller, they're going to give you something. Something which is true. I'm sure there's people in this room that has been to a fortune teller and they told you something that no one else could possibly know. That's the hook. That's the hook to get them in. Look what they said about this man. They said, this man is the great power of God. They publicly confessed him as God. This was their confession. This power was accredited to God. And I think this is a danger in the church. They used to say this was the danger in the charismatic movement. I don't think the charismatic is moving anymore, so I don't call it the movement. It's just Pentecostalism or Spiritism. Everything that they see, which is supernatural, they say it must be of God. This is real dangerous. Just because something is supernatural doesn't mean it's of Yahweh at all. We saw this with Moses, with Pharaoh, didn't we? They could do magical things while he did things by the finger of God. We have to be careful. John tells us to test the spirits. Does this line up with God? So what is supernatural? That's irrelevant. And even that wouldn't last. Remember with the Jews, they had the sea part, and they soon forgot about that because they're like cucumbers and melons and want to get back to Egypt. So the signs and wonders won't last Anyway, but let me just say, if you surrender to the person who is performing this, you'll come under literally their spell, is what you're doing. Always check the source of your information. Now, let's look at verse 11 says, they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Again, it's just not a one-off thing. Time and time again, he had performed miracles or signs and wonders or fortune telling, and he was correct. And because of this, they are getting ensnared deeper and deeper entangled with Simon the sorcerer. Simon was linked to the demonic realm, and they were linked to Simon. That's effectively what you do when you go to channelers, mediums, fortune tellers. You come under the authority of their God. Now, things develop quickly. Look, verse 12. I said, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So it's quite interesting. One minute, they're totally all out for Simon the sorcerer. The next minute, Philip preaches Christ and shows you how fickle people are or how revealing the word of God is. Now, Philip, it says, simply proclaimed the kingdom of God and the name of of Jesus. And I love the simplicity of this. 
Proclaiming is sometimes much better than trying to explain it. Just proclaim who Jesus is and allow the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of people. We can spend too much time trying to explain the gospel or trying to explain the Godhead and you end up explaining yourself away. We have our job to do and the Holy Spirit has his job to do. Amen? Now, the kingdom of God is simply God's authority on earth, God's rule, and God's reign, which is possible for us to come under God's rule and reign through and by the name of Jesus Christ and submitting to him. Now, it's an interesting part in the text. It said, they believed Philip, which is unusual. I think it's the only time in the New Testament they said they believed in someone else. They believed Philip. And some theologians saw this as kind of significant. One commentator puts it like this. By believing in Philip, it indicates intellectual assent rather than a commitment of heart. And I would say this with a multitude of Christians. Intellectually, they believe who Jesus is. But it hasn't gone from here to here. It's just knowledge. The heart is not changed. They're not moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just head knowledge. And you can go to chapel or church eight times a week. It doesn't mean anything. It's got to go from here to here. And that's all they've seemed to have received it as an intellectual ascent, theoretical. Now, for example, I'm going to give an example of intellectual ascent. If someone wants to show you so let's say a rope bridge from the Grand Canyon to the other side of the Grand Canyon. And you did the maths. And you said, well, technically this works. I can see the rope here. I can see the wooden slats. And you sit there looking at it and go, yep, yeah, that will take my weight. I believe you when you cross it. Okay? Up until that point, it's just intellectual ascent. But you have to walk across it to show me how much you believe in your theory. Did Andy say earlier about walking the walk and talking the talk? There's a very big difference, the intellectual scent of Christendom and the application of it in our lives. Now, verse 13 says, Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized and continued with Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Simon now believes, and he is baptized. And he continued with Philip and he would have seen the commission of Christ going forth people who are lame now walking people who are demonized are now set free evil spirits are cast out the hands of Philip and Simon was amazed just as the Samaritans were amazed at Simon the question is this was Simon's the sorcerers a real conversion Or was he just taken by the signs and wonders? And we see this a lot today, don't we? Come on, you YouTubers. You know I'm talking about people on the street, signs and wonders, not giving the gospel though, are they? And someone sees a sign and a wonder, someone gets healed, and they say, praise Jesus, and they walk off. They've not given the gospel in order for people to respond appropriately to receive eternal life. It's just a sign and a wonder. Now, 
The word regard in Samaria is out. Look with me in verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. It's a new venture. Samaria had received the word of God. And like all new ventures, it has to be checked out. And they've sent two of their top guys from HQ Jerusalem, John and Peter, to see if this is all legit. And it doesn't really matter, actually, if you're an apostle or not, in this sense. Because the same thing happened with Peter. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, and we read about it in a little while, and the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Peter himself had to give an account of what took place to the church at Jerusalem. He didn't say, well, I'm the Apostle Peter. I hung out with Jesus. You have to believe me. They wanted to see the credentials. How did this happen? So your position, whether you're a pastor, a bishop, an archbishop, if you're a pope, you've got enough to be dealing with. Jesus will deal with you, not me. Praise God. Whoever you are, whatever position you hold, is irrelevant when it comes to this. It, it really is. I can't emphasize it enough. If it's not in that, I'm not interested. If it goes against the word of God, you don't have my ear, I'm afraid. And today, we've got to get back to this. I believe half, maybe more than half, of the Christian books on sale now need to go into the bin. If anyone's watching online, recycling bin. It's utter junk, and it's pulling you away from this, which is life. And cleansing. Jesus said, you are clean because of the words I spoke unto you. This is where the power is. Of all the, many of the Christian books, I should put under the category of fiction. None of it's just fiction. And they always use the book of Revelation for fiction. Okay? Why do you want to read fiction when you can read the book of Revelation itself and have a blessing? It's the only book in the Bible that says you get a blessing simply by reading it. Read the word of God and allow the spirit to move. And also, with Peter working with John like this, shows the importance of working as a church body. I don't see this church as James as the head and then you lot come and sit and listen. Because if that was it, I would leave the church. Okay? Because it wouldn't be a church. We have to work as a body. We have to work collectively. And this is going to get more and more vital as time goes on. Because at the moment, we've got these nomadic, vigilante Christians who are out there on their own. And they're deceived, completely deceived. It's very hard to be part of a church. I know, you know it is, when we rub shoulders and wind each other up. But Jesus commands it. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints, is the word of God. We're not to do it. And this is how the devil plucks people out one by one. One by one. You know what I always say to people when they phone me up during the week and have a hard time. Come to church. Is that right, Christina? Come to church. Come to church. Yeah, what do I do about come to church? What do I do? Come to church. And we talk about it afterwards. That is vital that we come together. Amen? Amen. And we've really got to hold this dear in our hearts now because we're at a time in history 
which I certainly haven't known and I haven't read about in at least 550 years, I'd say. Reformation kind of time. We're in a time now. But it's exciting. Amen? Yes. People have been saved. The Spirit of God is working and Jesus Christ keeps his word. So it's kind of exciting. I like exciting things. And being Christian, it's exciting. And if it isn't exciting, you're doing something wrong. Effectively, you're not submitting to the Holy Spirit. Now, let's read about what Peter and John did. Verse 15 says, When they came down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason for this, verse 16 said, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, a commentator said this is the most extraordinary verse in the book of Acts. And there's many people who could comment on it. But I want to point out four things. What had happened in Samaria. The kingdom of God had been proclaimed. The name of Jesus had been received. They were baptized. But as yet, the Holy Spirit, or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them. So they'd done everything right. They'd ticked the boxes. But the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon any of them. I always liken this, and I say this reverently, to a mobile phone. You can have a mobile phone, but unless you've got it switched on, there's nothing going. You say, well, I've got a mobile phone, but you've got no reception. There's nothing's happening. And I meet scores of powerless Christians not just in here, because there's not scores of us, don't worry, throughout the world. And they, those are the ones who tend to go into the, the reading side or to the intellectual side, rather than saying, hold on, why, why not have both? Jesus has got it all. It's the Holy Spirit that dishes out the gifts. So let's make friends with the Holy Spirit, amen? And the Holy Spirit is a he, it's not an it. He's a person. We talk about the Trinity or the Godhead, in him, Jesus, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, we speak of this as a Trinitarian God. Well, let's not miss out the Holy Spirit. Amen? He's the one to reveal all things to us as he's commissioned by Jesus and to remind us of all the things that Jesus taught. He's the one we ought to know. Amen? Now, J.B. Phillips translates this verse 16. But as yet, he, the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon them. Now, listen carefully to this. They were living simply as men and women who had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were living simply as men and women. There's no power, no change in their heart, no change in their conversation, no change in their zeal. They joined the Christian club. I'm a Christian now. I've got a badge and a baptism certificate. But they haven't changed. And this is what I'll be seeking to interpret. Well, let's move on for now. Verse 17 says, And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 tells us they did spend a bit of time praying for them beforehand, but nothing else is mentioned. Now look at the reaction of Simon the sorcerer. Verse 18 and when Simon saw that through the laying of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Now the question here is, what did Simon see? He didn't see nothing. He must have seen some sort of manifestation. 
of the Holy Spirit. Something had changed in the people whom the apostles laid hands on. We read through scriptures, some speak in tongues, some prophesy. But he must have seen something scripture does not specify. Now Simon, verse 19 said, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, did the apostles lay hands on Simon? Verse 17 seems to indicate that it did, that they did. It said they laid hands on them. But Simon believed that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, that the Holy Spirit was imparted to them. And that through this, he may be able to impart it onto others also. There's a tradition in some of the mainline churches, uh, the Anglican Church, Episcopalian Church of Scotland and so forth, that when one is confirmed, they ask the bishop to come down and lay hands on them. Something special is going to happen. But we will see in a little while that is not the case. It's simply a tradition. Sorry, you Anglicans who are listening. I love the Anglican Church. I just want the Holy Spirit to get in them. Fire you all up. Fired up Anglicans in robes. That excites me. Right. <laughs> Do you know what? It's, it's an Anglican church in Jerusalem. It's the only church I heard people actually speaking in tongues and getting an interpretation. There we go. Big shout out there to Christ Church, Jerusalem. There's a lot I could add there, but I won't. Anyway. Bless you, David Pelegi, you know what I'm talking about. Now, verse 20 says, <laughs> Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. To hell with you and your money, says one interpretation. How dare you think that you could buy the gift of God for money. Apollia is the word. Utter destruction. Okay? Sounds very unchristian, doesn't it, Aaron? To hell with you and your money. You've got a proper reaction of Peter. What a disgrace of trying to buy the Holy Spirit. You see? We get this conflict of a holy God and money. The love of money. Thinking that you can buy your position with God. Now Peter goes on at verse 21. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. See, Simon's mouth exposed his heart. Peter discerned Simon's heart was not right. Peter says, my favorite word, repent therefore of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Repent and pray. I think this is a solution to a lot of your problems, certainly a solution to a lot of my problems. Repent, turn him back to God and get on your knees and pray. This is what Peter saw. Verse 23 says, For I see, see this contrast between what Simon saw and what Peter saw. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So Peter saw two things. First, he was poisoned by bitterness, full of evil, evil ideas in his mind. He had not been transformed. Gall of bitterness, the King James says. 
Whether Simon was aware of his state of his inner man, I don't know. And he's bound by iniquity. The NIV says he was captive to sin. Completely bound. Where are you this morning? Are you bound? Are you aware that maybe you're bound or not? We will find out. Now Simon gives a good response. Look, verse 24. And then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of those things which I've spoken to you may, uh, spoken to me may come upon me. Now this is a common response. Pray for me. But I think the sentiment of the New Testament is get desperate for yourself. James, pray for me. Get people to pray for me. Okay, well, I will do that. I can round up lots of people to pray, but you have to be desperate. Deliverance is for the desperate. You have to get desperate for yourself. And whatever stops you coming to Christ, you must hate with a perfect hatred. That's the words of King David. I hate you with a perfect hatred. I consider you my enemy. God does not deliver us from our friends. He only delivers us from our enemies. So whatever is getting in between you and Christ, you must hate it with a perfect hatred. And God will deliver you. So when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of Samaria. The apostles carried on with their mission, and Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, The churches throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had preached uh, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord, knowing whom they serve, in awe and wonder of the living God, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's a good balance, yeah? We have to know whom we're serving. I'm not worried about any other God, so-called God in the world, because that so-called God is not my God. He's not the creator of heaven and earth. That God is not the one who delivered me from my sins. That God is not able to atone for my sins. That God hasn't come to me in the desperate hour, but this God has. And he says, fear the Lord, and those who do, it's the beginning of wisdom. Well done. I'm going to give you the interpretation, okay? Have you got all of that? Good, it's quite a lot. Now, to properly interpret a scripture... It takes, you have to evaluate the scripture, you have to balance it up, you have to rightly divide the word of God. And, if possible, whatever prejudice you have, whatever prejudice I have, denominational leanings, has to go aside. And I think this is one of the real dangers. You agree with that, Don? I think this is one of the real dangers of traditional churches, where you have to take the whole package, you see? Because we're this church, we believe X, Y, and Z. 
whether the gospel says something completely different or the New Testament expounds something different. And we've all got prejudice. I have, you have. We have to put it aside and be honest with ourselves in the light of Scripture. So this is the question I want to address. Why did those in Samaria not receive the Holy Spirit? Verse 16 said, But yet it had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. Now this phrase, fallen upon, is where some Christians struggle. Fallen upon. Does it mean that they had not received the Holy Spirit at all at conversion? I don't believe that. Or is it better understood, this phrase, fallen upon, as the empowering, the telephone example? They had not been empowered, they'd received the Holy Spirit, but there was a barrier to them actually being empowered by it. Either way, they had not. Remember the commentator said this is perhaps the most extraordinary verse in the book of Acts? Now, this phrase fallen upon is used in Acts chapter 10. Let's just turn to Acts 10. And this is where Peter goes to Cornelius' house. But this is so rich here. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Peter had been instructed to go to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel. Peter had told God it wasn't a good idea. God wins. Peter goes. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking those words, giving them a sermon, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that's the Jews, who believed were astonished, as many came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. You can see Peter's in big trouble. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So they'd seen some manifestation. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that they should not be baptized, who received the Holy Spirit just as we have. See, immediately, these people were believers. They'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. But Peter still said they have to be baptized because it's the commission of Christ. Whether you've received the Holy Spirit beforehand or after is irrelevant. You have to be baptized. Verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay for a few days. I bet they did. Turn over the page. I don't know how big your Bible is. And we get that report that I mentioned earlier. And Peter has to go to Jerusalem and give a report about what took place. Acts 11 verse 15. And he's given an account. Everyone has to give an account. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That's the word fell upon again as us at the beginning, as it was in the day of Pentecost. And then I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift, as the Holy Spirit gift, he gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could withstand God? See, it'd be quite interesting if the Jerusalem church had a certain theological position. Imagine if they had their creeds done, they'd had their doctrines done. We don't go to the Gentiles, but Peter's wise enough to say, who am I 
I can withstand God. He had to go with it. Okay, so in the light of what we see, power was displayed and reported. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This was after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Just want to see where you received the Holy Spirit. After Peter's sermon there at the day of Pentecost. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, Peter's sermon. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, everybody, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. So the Holy Spirit is given once one puts their trust in Jesus Christ through obedience. It's when one receives. First you must repent. Turn from the world, turn to God, and receive. So those in Samaria believed in Philip as he taught the kingdom, and they were baptized. But repentance isn't mentioned. I don't believe that someone of the caliber of Philip would have left it out. So the interpretation could be, could it be that the apostles laid hands on them? There's only two problems with this. This is another teaching in traditional churches. Is that Peter did not lay hands on anyone at Cornelius' house, did he? The Holy Spirit simply came down. Interrupted Peter's sermon. He spent days doing it. The Holy Spirit said, no, I'll do it now, thanks. And also we read in Acts chapter 9 when the uh, Apostle Paul, Ananias laid hands on him, but Ananias was not one of the apostles. So it has nothing to do with the physical laying on of hands for those who receive the Holy Spirit. So here's my interpretation. Now I believe that those in Samaria were bound to Simon the sorcerer. This is what I think was actually happening. They worshipped him as a god. and said this man is the great power of God. They believed in Jesus. They believed in the, in the message that Philip preached but they had not fully renounced their previous life and things that they'd been involved in in their previous life. Therefore, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. They had been so bound with Simon, so bound with magic, the only thing that can come against it now is by renouncing, receiving the Holy Spirit, by declaring the blood of Jesus Christ on their life. And I know this to be true. When I was living in Jerusalem, indeed I'd received the Holy Spirit before that in India. But there was a couple involved in a particular ministry out there, an older American couple, not particularly Pentecostal. But they asked me a particular question, do you speak in tongues? And this isn't about tongues today, that's another argument. But I said no, and they said, well, come to my house this evening and um, I want to speak with you. So I went to the house and... Um, is a lovely old American chap. And he said, got a pen and paper? He said, right, tell me your sins. And I, re I remember it. His wife was sat there writing an email back to America. 
I thought, oh, dear Lord, she's going to hear. And I thought, well, do you know what? She's heard it all, hasn't she? They've been in ministry for about 50 years. So this lovely man called George was writing down, what else did you do? What else? And? Really? Yeah, okay. How many times? Okay. You never. I said, George, you're going to run out of ink, brother. He goes, we'll just get the basics. And we literally systematically went through them, one by one, renouncing them, and covering each one in the blood of Jesus. That was it. Very systematic. Some may say very religious. And then he prayed for me. And when I woke up, I didn't speak in tongues. The next day I woke up and I was just walking on air. I was a completely different man. Although I'd received the Holy Spirit, I was completely, and I've never been the same since. Much more empowered. Then later on, in fact, he we prayed together and I did speak in tongues, but that's besides the point at the moment. But my mind was different. I was empowered more simply by breaking the sound barrier, renouncing the things which come against Christ and basically reversing it. Renouncing and receiving the Holy Spirit. And I think there is true power in that. Amen? Amen. Maybe some of you have experienced the same thing or or maybe you're going to experience it in a minute. Now, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not just in your heart, but you have to confess it with your mouth. Now, verse 15 says, Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I believe the Lord showed Peter what the problem was. They were bound to Simon the sorcerer. He was their God. And they hadn't renounced him publicly. Now Peter said clearly two things. Verse 23 says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Simon was bound to his sin and the people of Samaria were bound to Simon. So, where's Brother David? Brother David, I can ask you to come up. So we've had the exposition. We've had the interpretation. And now we want to go forth with the application. Okay, you've done very well. It's long. There's a lot of things to consider there. Now, I don't know. I want to come before the Lord and pray for you and with you. I don't know everybody here. I don't know what every one of us has been involved in, in their life, in their past life, or things their family have been involved in. I don't know all of this. All things that people have been involved in during lockdown. I don't know everything. But I do believe that by truly renouncing these things publicly, and you can do it quietly, we're going to have some music playing, I want to pray for those there, but we must speak it out must break the sound barrier and come before the Lord humbly. No one's forcing you, but I think it'd be very wise and I think you will see the difference. And then I will pray that to plead the blood of Jesus over certain areas on your life. I've done it myself. I will do it again here with you. And Christians really struggle with this, breaking the sound barrier. 
But I think if we do it together, God will get the glory. Amen? Amen. So renunciation really means the formal rejection of something, a belief, a claim, or cause of action. So, if we'd like to stand with me, please.